Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. The Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Sunday, February 7th, 2021, Super Bowl Sunday. Super Bowl Sunday. But more about that later, right? <laughs> oh, very soon, but uh, that's later tonight. We're not even going to make a production because uh, by the time this is uh, disseminated, the game will be over. But uh, also because we we have not been sitting idly worrying about the Super Bowl, we've been out and about because it's been a very snowy week here. Yes, it's been super snowy for the first time out of the, nowhere. Years and years and years, we thought that we were the forgotten area where it comes to snow, and we had the huge storm early in the week, which was what was that about fifteen inches or something like that. And then uh, this morning, like uh, out of nowhere, it was supposed to be two to four, or maybe three to six. We get like eight inches, inches of snow, inches. eight inches dumped down. Uh-huh. So it's been oh, it's snowy. more than eight. It's, 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 it's totally tons. more than eight. Yes, it's it's a lot of snow, and we have been taking advantage of it because we've been cross country skiing, sort of. Well, I I think it counts. Well, we have these odd skis. Yes, they're called Hawks by a company called Altai, and they're somewhere between. They're fat little skis. They're somewhere between snowshoes and cross country skis. Right. And they're inspired by some Asian mountain skis that have been used for centuries, as, as millennia they, maybe, I don't know. As they should be, yes. Um, but anyway, we plod about wait, wait, on them. Here's the best part about it. You don't need special uh, ski bindings or ski boots. You just, anyone can use them. They're adjustable, and you just have your normal shoes on, and you put them in, and you Well, not your in. normal shoes. You wear your snow boots. Well, you wear, we wear something that's waterproof. But the point is, you don't need special equipment. You wear something that you wear in this kind of weather generally. Well, and so it, many people can many use people can the use same them, skis. And you don't need the special equipment. Uh, and uh, it's fantastic, and it kind of works. It kind of works. Yeah. As I said, we mostly kind of tromp. Plod around. Not, not you might do that. I'm, uh, I'm flying down there. I'm uh, skiing like nobody's business. But it's good for the back country. That's right. That's right. We're, it, we're, we're not on groomed trails. No, no. That's that's also part of the we're great thing about. We're not fussing about. But these we... with these skis, you don't need that. You just get out and go, and uh, that's the perfect thing for us. We yeah. just say, "Hey, snow!" We just jump on our skis, and we're out there in the field. And, uh, of course, it's wonderful to be out in this weather. The, today was not a great day for skiing because it was kind of sticky. But uh, Ski-wise, it wasn't great, but uh, atmosphere-wise. It was unbelievable. It was, it was uh, very uh, yeah. picturesque. It was fantastic. So, so we get have been enjoying the some hawk skis. Yes, and you bought them years ago from uh, L.L. Bean. I think L.L. Bean was distributing them at yeah. some point. But, uh, you know... Uh, they're not for everybody. And we bought them if years you really, ago. If you we really like ago. to ski, perhaps they're not the thing. No, but it's great for being out, and it's ski-like, and uh, it's a fantastic, fun thing to do if you have an open field near you on a snowy day. And, you know, Granger and Nico borrow them. Anybody can right. borrow them. It's not like they have to have special right. shoes. It's fantastic. It's been a lot of fun. But enough about us. Yes. Yeah, so well, what are we going to say about the Super Bowl? It's just that... Um, the Super Bowl uh, has come upon us. We all know it's Kansas City against Tampa Bay, and we'll beat. We'll, we we'll all be. know. We all know. Everyone knows. You know, that. You know, not everybody knows. Not everybody's plugged into that. Maybe too plugged into it. Uh, but but you know what Super Bowl has always meant to big sports fans. Uh, which it's great commercials. No, I'm, I'm interested in the commercials. What what what? Of course uh, you're not. No, of course I'm not. Is right. What Super Bowl means, if you're a sports fan, used to be, is that it's the end of the sports season. It used to be once the Super Bowl happens, you're stuck. There's no more football. 
There's like uh, regular season NBA and regular season NHL, which are not interesting. And the baseball season whoa, starts for another whoa, 10 whoa, weeks. Whoa. 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 Was right. NBA and NHL are not and uh, do you remember, interesting. Do you remember what used to break the monotony following the uh, Super Bowl? Yes. The Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. Exactly. It was time for that reason, to lift the spirits of uh, men who were sort of feeling a little down now that football season was over. And, you know, Sports Illustrated doesn't even have a print edition anymore, let alone a Well, let me, let me see. I know you can't make a prediction. Yeah. And I know if you did, it would be wrong. Yeah. Oh! Which would still be a help. <laughs> help how? Because we can just, you know, vote against you. Yes. What, what, Bet what? against you. Right. Whatever. Um, and it will be too late for the right. viewing public. Yeah. But um, who do you like, really? I think you can't bet against Kansas City. I mean, Kansas City is uh, so many ways to score. There are a couple things going against them. They've had a couple bad injuries. One in particular, their left tackle. Uh, in on any any other team, the idea of losing your left tackle right before the big game would be disastrous. But the quarterback Mahomes is so mobile. Um, nothing seems to throw that offense down, uh, up. Uh, they had a better game in their championship game. The Tampa Bay had against Green Bay. That was a game that was riddled with errors by both teams. So, um, I like uh, Kansas City. Okay. Remember you heard you, it here, folks. If you get this broadcast in time, Put bet your bet. money on the Buccaneers <laughs> now. <laughs> they're playing at Tampa Bay. That's where, that's the funny thing about it. It's the first time Super Bowl was uh, one of the teams playing in its home city. Whatever. Yeah, it's history making. With no fans. As I understand <laughs> <With> it. No, <laughs> everything about the Super Bowl is history. You know, the Tampa Bay sports wise is really coming up roses. Well, they had the uh, hockey champions and they had a team that went to the World Series. So yeah, so. They're uh, out they're of rolling. nowhere. Yeah. Out of nowhere. Yeah. Well, wow. so. And the funny thing is, they don't have, uh, the fans don't go to sporting events. I mean, I think the hockey team does well, but the baseball team does awful. Uh, I think the, the football team would, in another non-pandemic season, would be all attended. But in any event, uh, yeah. So there you go. Okay. So, so here's a fun his, article. Speaking of history making, yes. Yes. So when you think of uh, New Jersey. Yes. I think, I know what I think of. You don't think of royalty, do I, you? I think of... <laughs> <laughs> Out of uh, King Creamy Freeze or whatever that yeah, right. uh, ice cream spot is we go by. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, likewise, when you think of the name Bonaparte, yeah. you really don't... Don't think of uh, New Jersey. No, you think of... Uh, here they come up first with Corsica, right. which uh, is always happy to think about Corsica. Paris... Alexandria, Waterloo, uh, etc. But New Jersey, no. No. But you'd be wrong. You'd be wrong because actually the older brother of uh, Napoleon actually uh, built a mansion in New Jersey in like, I don't know, 1820. Mm -hmm. 18, no, 1815. Right. Um, So anyway. uh, Can I ask you one question? What? What exit? What exit? Yeah. Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't. Uh, I don't know. Um, he built it before the turnpike, honey. I mean, he built it in the early 1800s. Was no, it? but it's Bordentown. There's a Bordentown exit. Yeah, all right. I just well, don't know what it is. I only know. It's, it's got. I only one. know the exits from 
eight A North. It's got to be exit really. seven or something. Yeah. It? Yes, but but anyway, he built it before the turnpike. That's how long ago he built this. All right, so we're bumbling about here, but remember Napoleon, French emperor. Yeah. Okay. Uh, made his brother king of Naples. Oh yeah. He whipped Naples into shape. Did he? And then, uh, and then Napoleon decided to uh, give Naples to his brother-in-law or something, and uh, switched uh, Joseph over to Spain. So he was king of Spain. Hmm. Not yeah. really the greatest experience. No, Spain did not really warm up to him. No, but uh, he tried to do some fun, cool stuff like getting rid of the Spanish Inquisition. That would seem to be a plus. Well. Um, but anyway, uh, Napoleon does fall. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh. His brother's got to get out of there. Yeah, Joseph's got to skedaddle out of there. And he, and goes he ends up in. New Jersey. Bordentown, Bordentown. New Jersey. And not that, you know, that's interesting, because not just New Jersey, but Bordentown. Because Bordentown is, uh, would an afterthought be the right word to use for Bordentown? It's not exactly a high-profile well, place. south of Trenton. Yeah. And Trenton's a big time compared to Bordentown. A little bit more than halfway between... New York and Philly. Yeah, it's uh, it's pleasant, but it's it's. It, he chose a spot on a river. Yeah, right, Delaware River. Yeah, so he could make a quick exit, mm. and so he could see all enemies coming. Mm. Uh, I guess when you're king, you know, you think about these things, and uh, he had a huge mansion there. Um, well, huge, maybe not compared to Versailles or something, but it was thirty-eight thousand square feet. Yeah, and he lived there for a while. And then uh, in the 30s, 1830s, he left there. He ended up London, you know. Uh, right. So you might be saying, uh, so this, what are we talking about before? Because you want to visit that mansion? And the answer is not exactly. It's not there. It's not there. Everything is gone. <laughs> it's gone. Okay. It passed into various hands. And, uh, you know, people were looking for, uh, you know. Fancier houses or whatever built their own house, you know, because they had that old-fashioned house from the 1820s. Exactly. And but he, it was an interesting house and it was an interesting property. He built all he built, you know, wonderful gardens. Apparently, you know, because he's used to being a king. Uh, You're going to do that kind of thing. And um, he, uh, what else? Oh, he had secret tunnels, so he could escape. And get away to Crosswick's Creek, and where a boat would be waiting to take him down yeah. to the Delaware. So what so is it? Get the heck out! So somebody of bought Dodge. something though. So something's happening, right? Somebody uh, bought the site, or well, what? Um, after all these years, uh, they raised some money. They, yeah, they, I guess it was about to be sold or yeah. something. Uh, it's owned by. The Society of the Divine Word, a oh, that's Catholic right. that's right. a missionary yeah, order, right? organization. Right, and they, okay. s- they sold it to this uh, Well, they were about group. to sell it, yeah. right? And, and they've owned it since the 1940s. Right. Okay. Uh, I guess it's about to be sold. And meanwhile, I guess out of nowhere, to the rescue comes Peter Tucci, mm-hmm. who is uh, a lawyer from New Hope, PA. Well, he lives there. He practices in Philly, I think. Yeah. Okay, whatever. You yeah. know. And uh, is a great collector of Bonaparte stuff. And he's one of those people... I mean, I've known about the Bonapartes in Jersey for many, many years. Oh, yeah? I feel like I must have seen some article in an exhibition somewhere. Mm-hmm. And they said, this belonged to so-and-so. They had it in New Jersey. And I was, what? What? 
Um, so he read some article. Yeah. And he was fascinated right. that, uh, you know, Joseph Bonaparte was in New Jersey. And he's been collecting Bonaparte memorabilia for years. He estimates he spent like 200,000 buckos on uh, this little hobby. Right. It's an expensive article to read, he comments <laughs> at some point. Anyway, um, when he, you know, he's... Uh, he gets acquainted with the Society of the Divine Word. He becomes uh, aware that it's going; the property is going to be sold. He actually talks um, basically the town into buying it and uh, preserving it as part of a land trust, the DNR Greenway. But so, so you said the, the the house is no longer there. So what? They're buying the land. They have some tunnels. Well, there's what some. There's there some buildings there, but they're going to buy the land. They're going to build a uh, new town hall huh. and police department there. Okay. And the rest of it, uh, police station, the rest of it, oh, you know what's there from the original estate is the gardener's house. Okay. Okay, so that's all we have from Bonaparte and a few miscellaneous brick bridges and mm-hmm. remnants of those secret tunnels. Okay, and um, so the um the majority of the property is going to be open to the public for hiking and exploring but there's et enough there that you know it's something special you know you, you there's enough bonaparte related things or artifacts that you yeah see. there'll be a little museum but mm-hmm. in, in any case it, it will the property will be okay. um maintained and it won't be another huge you know shopping mall okay. or a residential development kind of thing it will be, still be um, beautiful open land along the Crosswicks Creek and the Delaware River, and uh, a uh, reminder of uh, New Jersey's uh, royal past. Royal visitors. <laughs> okay, so uh, good. Well, speaking of France and our relations with France, uh, what we've been watching lately on television is a French show called uh, Call My Agent. Well, we're totally into French shows at the moment. Well, that's true. Because we're, because watching we're also watching Lupin. 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 We don't watch anything if there's no subtitles. Lupin. What me, a heartbreaker. Let me tell you something. If there is no subtitles, we don't want to see it. Yeah. Not that we need the subtitles. We don't need the subtitles. After watching a few episodes, we find we're rather fluent. Well, the great thing is whenever, sometimes when, the, you know, we find ourselves turning up the volume without, <laughs> for no reason that we can really think of, but uh, you do well, it. It's nice to hear the French, even if you don't know what the heck they're saying. You want saying. to hear the background music. Once in a while they say something you can understand, like, okay. Yeah, yeah, never. Um, I would say never. Anyway, I'm still upset about Lupin. Uh, There's nothing to be upset about. But Lupin is... two seasons. Okay, Okay, go explain. But Netflix has only released the first season, and it ends on a cliffhanger. Yes, but they don't have the second season ready yet. It's not like they're holding it. No, I think it's ready. Well, I think they're just It's not going to be released until the summer. So it's it's a five-episode season. But we're not talking about Lupin. I'm in love with Lupin. We talked about Lupin already. Now we're talking about... They enticed my, me in. Call my agent. Usually we watch a show after everyone else has watched it three years later. We're on top of it. So things. we have no problem. That's we can not binge cool. to That's our hearts true. content. We're on top of some shows oh, yeah. right away. Like Shit's Creek. Justified. We were right there. <laughs> no. The Americans from day one. Uh, yeah, but... Uh, uh, mostly uh, uh, not. Uh, no, no. I'm on top of it. Anyway, so you want to talk about Call My no, Agent. No, I don't want to say a lot, but it's another French show with subtitles. How could we uh, miss? And uh, it actually is very interesting, and it's fun. Uh, I don't know if it's interesting, but it's wonderful. Okay. 
You want to use whatever words you want. No, do you think, at this point, I feel like the plot lines are getting a little repetitive. Yeah. You know, there's sort of kind of a formula. Right. You know, there's this kind of conflict and it'll be resolved this way. And is that usually a pretty happy ending? But what's interesting is the French culture. Yeah. You know, even as sort of cosmopolitan as the world now is, as we're all one world, the French are different from the Americans. That's right. They really are. And it's just fun to see. Uh, how they operate and what they think is funny, you know, and um, yeah. how they portray men and women. And especially because when you see an American show, the women are so cosmetic. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe the men too. Everybody is so um, just smooth and flawless and uh, so dressed up. Right. Uh, somehow... The French women are more natural. More natural, but they're still beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's odd. It works. Yeah. You know, they they all seem very elegant and sophisticated, yeah. even though they're not uh, as uh, airbrushed yeah, as look, I uh, can't the put, Americans. Maybe that's the secret to it, the idea that it's a different culture, but it, it doesn't seem as predictable. It, you know, the characters seem interesting. Um they resolve things. Often people really go at each other in a you know, really rough way, you know, screaming and shouting. And five minutes later, they're all made up and they're moving on because they know they have to move on. And they resolve things in what I think are unexpected ways. You can tell me perhaps culturally that's the reason they're unexpected because they don't resolve things the way Americans would resolve things. Maybe that's what's sustaining right, my interest. Right. I don't know. That's what it's you're a suggesting. basically happy ending, but it's not all neat, tied with a bow. Yeah, and it's not 100%, yeah. but people aren't right. expecting 100%. I mean, the characters aren't expecting 100%. They have a different way of operating. They have a different way of looking at the world. Uh, they're more forgiving in some ways. Uh, anyway. And some of it's hilarious, and some of it is saying, you know, the French. <laughs> they're just so weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So anyway, it's difficult to describe, but I think you did it well. But in any event, call my agent. Check it out. Check it out. And another thing, there was a very little brief thing. Speaking of calling agents. Well, no, there's a very brief thing about uh, how it's kind of inconsequential. But, you know, the uh, Broadway shows have been using uh, Ticketmaster for quite some Once time. again. What? You stomp all over my segue. No. You used to call a ticket agent to oh, get tickets. Oh, oh, agent? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, all right. What a great segue. Now. I see. So now instead of Ticketmaster. Since ticket we go master, on the internet yeah. instead of Ticketmaster. Uh, yes. One of the big uh, producers assigned to deal with SeatGeek. SeatGeek, which is really known for being into the secondary market like StubHub. You know, if you couldn't buy tickets to something or you wanted to get cheap tickets to something, you'd go on the SeatGeek previously. If you wanted to get any ticket. Yeah, and you'd be buying them in the secondary market. Somebody suddenly couldn't make it. Maybe you can get a bargain. Maybe you can get something going. Well, now they're going to be frontline because they're going to, when you want your frontline tickets, you're not going to be dealing with Ticketmaster a lot. You're going to be dealing with SeatGeek. And one of the reasons that the theaters say that they were attracted to SeatGeek was that they have a very interesting technology. There's more flexibility. There's more capabilities. For example, this is the only reason I brought this up. It turns out you'll be able to buy tickets to a show and at the same time arrange to have champagne delivered to your seat during intermission. <laughs> what do you think of that? Well, what do you think of that, honey? Haven't they been doing that at like... Delivered to your seat? Yeah. But no. don't they do that at sports events? No. 
I see people getting no. things to their seat. Yeah, yeah because yeah. they yell to the peanut guy over here, okay? <laughs> That's a little bit different. It's this, you range in hand, you know. Right. I may, for example, let's say I surprise you. We're sitting there and you say, I got to get, but uh, just sit, stay in your seat, honey. Stay in your seat. Oh, there it is now. That's never going to happen. I'm telling you. That's uh, right around. <laughs> it's coming right around the corner. But uh, You'll remember this conversation. Well, that that's uh, that's interesting. It, I have found uh, Ticketmaster. What's the other one? Oh, I forget. Ticket something. Yeah, it's called Ticket something. You're right. <laughs> um, the their whole their whole system is kind of cumbersome and is annoying. Yeah. Uh, so um, I'm hoping for better. Yeah. You know, just you know, thinking about when you're well, looking it's, for it's competitive, you know, trying it's to find out what seats are available, yeah. and trying to make the choices and. Right. Um, you know, changing the um, filters and blah, technology blah, blah. marches on. Yeah. It's a competitive environment. So if if we do have a Broadway again, we'll be we'll be drunk be a at nice addition. We'll begin. So um, in the New York Times, there was an, an interesting little article about an artist from the 20th century, Florine Stettheimer, and uh, I got to say, I was not. Uh, familiar with Florine Stettheimer until not. about, I don't know, 12 or 15 years ago, oh, really? uh, actually one of my students did uh, chose a painting by Stettheimer mm-hmm. for her museum paper. Mm-hmm. And it's, at, it's at the um, Philadelphia Museum of Art. And I was charmed. Uh, Florine Stettheimer lived from 1871 to 19. 19- 44. Right. And uh, she was a feminist, a theatrical designer, a poet, a sal- salonier. She, she and her sisters had a salon, had people over. She was buddies. It's a real French theme. With today, people like time. Marcel Duchamp. Oh, Marcel Duchamp. Uh, and, uh, you know, other cool 20th century Marcel Duchamp uh, artists. The, he's the one who had the toilet. Am I correct? Yes. Uh, yes. Of course, yes. Uh, in fact, on that note, yeah. Uh, Let's just say the the Stettheimer, there were a bunch of Stettheimer kids, right? Their mother was a wealthy, you know, German right. heiress, hmm. okay? Their father um, at some point leaves the family and heads to Australia. And the, the, the kids and mom travel back and forth or between Europe and the U.S., uh, for years and years and years, so they're they're quite a sophisticated mm-hmm. group. Uh, one of the girls, one of the sisters, Carrie, had a fantastic dollhouse that I think we've talked about before. It's in the Museum of the City of New York, mm-hmm. and it actually has miniature paintings by people like Duchamp and uh, George Bellows, Gaston Lachaise. Uh, you know, sculptures and paintings by these famous artists who are their buddies, right. hang out, hanging out at the salon, um, and uh, it's uh, it's kind of a fantastic uh, little um, dollhouse in the museum of the city of New York. So anyway, so I knew about that a little mm. bit, and uh, so anyway, Florine, her style is interesting. It's a it's kind of hard to explain. A little bit, I, I don't know. In, in the paper, it describes it as uh, ultra feminine, uh, faux naif style. It's mostly urban subject matters. She does a series of the cathedrals of New York, you know, um, Broadway, uh, the great stores, the great museums, uh, things like that. Uh, but uh, in any case, recently, over the course of 
I mean, she wasn't, she didn't even sell her paintings. She didn't uh, make paintings to sell, really. Uh, she felt uh, letting other people have your paintings was like letting other people wear your clothes. Uh, but so there aren't a lot of her paintings on the market. Right. Um, but this year, this past year, 2020, about five of her works came up for sale, mm -hmm. which uh, seems kind of astounding considering her, considering her uh, output or whatever. Right. And so it turns out, why are there so many for sale? Because some of them aren't real. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> um, well, that's uh, worrisome. There was one painting uh, of a seated dancer, which uh, an expert on uh, Stettheimer spots for sale. And um, this is Barbara Blomink, and she actually uh, was one of the organizers of a um, big exhibition at the Whitney in 1995 of Stettheimer's work. So she knows the work. She describes that painting as crap kitsch painted in the 50s or 60s. Oh, really? And uh, she calls him up. She gives him what for, and uh, it's taken off the market. Good. Taken out of the auction. Yeah. Okay, so we don't see that one. Another one it was a little pen and ink that turns up at our local favorite Rego art auction. It's right auction over in Lambertville. Know, in Lambertville. Right. And uh, this is a little pen and ink of a nude woman. She seems to have extra arms, and she's lying on a couch. And um, in the corner is the name, Florine Stettheimer. But the very corner of the piece of paper is kind of torn off. And so uh, somebody actually recognized this work and uh, called up Rego and said, you know, there's a photograph from Stettheimer's bathroom in the 1940s yeah. uh, showing this work of art. And you can see, you can see the whole corner, the missing corner now. And it's, it has the artist's name um, who was, uh, where did I write that down? Uh, Paul Thévernaz. Thévernaz. Yeah. Um, and, and has a date, 1916. So it's clearly not a Yeah, he was a dancer and an artist and a friend of hers. Right, I see. And uh, he must have, you know, um, dedicated this to her or oh, whatever. Somehow that corner is missing. Yeah. Uh, the, um, you know, the Rego people talked to uh, their source for it and... Uh, didn't really get an answer, but anyway, it's been changed to um, Stettheimer being part of the provenance uh, of this work. It's still sold for a good chunk of change. It's sold for $5,000, uh, which is not bad for a little uh, pen and ink like that. Um, so anyway, and uh, one other work I think Blomink also pointed out that didn't seem quite right, and that also was removed taken out of rotation huh? yeah hmm. so uh interesting but she has a very interesting style i don't think it would appeal to you but uh i thought it was a an interesting a very interesting choice um for one of my students yeah good um because it is a unique, unique style quite huh. different from a lot of what was going on yeah. in the 20th century at that time all right, so there's an article at Times, which you know, I don't know if this is worth spending much time on, but I just found it interesting. It's just hard to really talk about it. Um, uh, it's an opinion piece by Charlie Warzel about the Internet, but it's really a discussion with a guy who was a big figure uh, in the Internet named uh, Michael Goldhaber. And 
Uh, he lives in Berkeley. That tells you something right there. And Goldhaber, uh, described here as an internet uh, prophet, um, made a lot of predictions, I guess, in the 90s. And apparently in some people's minds, all of them have come true as to how the internet was going to change things. Uh, but one of the interesting observations that he made and continues to make because he's still around is that uh, the internet really, in a sense, upsets the balance with respect to one of the most finite resources in the world, which is human attention. Uh, to describe the scarcity of human uh, attention, uh, what Goldhaber uh, latched onto was an obscure term co coined by a psychologist named Herbert Simon, and that is the attention economy. Uh, the attention economy. And now what you have is a lot of competition through the internet, social media, through all kinds of things. Uh, a lot of competition for people's attention. Okay. With the thought that you can right. monetize that. And this relentless competition for people's attention affects the way we live. And it also uh, makes it harder and harder, as Goldhaber observes, um, to engage in what he calls the value of true modesty or humility. Because it's hard to sustain that in an attention economy. All value is getting people's attention. Uh, so that people want attention too, people, not just products. Right. People want attention, yes. And, and, and you get it, it's, that's politics, that's everything. Uh, the ability to garner people's attention can be monetized, can be used to get political power, right. can be used in a lot of and different ways. It's only an issue because of it's an issue just the sophistication of the communications. Well, it's an issue for for a lot of reasons because uh, once people garnering people's attention gives you power, gives you economic power, gives you political right. power. But I mean, years ago, your attention there weren't that many things to grab your attention. Well, okay. You had so, a smaller world. Right, right. Right. So, so yes, you're getting to his main point here, which is quite apart from what people do to exploit the attention that they're able to garner. There's your own limited resources, or as a writer, Howard Rheingold, puts it, attention is a limited resource. So the key is to pay attention to where you pay attention. All right? Uh, that's not, not my words, but I think, I think it's reasonably clear. What Goldhaber says is this. Instead of asking how do you allocate the attention you have in more focused intention, well, you should ask the question, how do you allocate the attention you have in more focused intentional ways? Some of that is personal, Another part is thinking about attention societally, in society, but the word is societally. Uh, and, uh, you know, raising issues of where we direct our attention and resources and what we value. So it's a matter of sort of, you know, realizing you have limited attention, All right, so keeping this... it to yourself, and or thinking about how you're spending your time. Uh, and ha what you're paying attention to, and from a political perspective, an economics perspective, thinking about what are the issues you really want to focus on or not, because there's just limitations to what you can lavish attention on, right? right. Okay. Uh, look, it goes on from there. I don't want to get too deeply into it. Just another article about, you know, stay away from social media, right? Well, I think that's what you come away with uh, from that, but uh, yes, maybe uh, that's where you end up. Don't bother with the nonsense. Yes, don't bother with the nonsense, but it's a little more sophisticated than that. No, because forget it, about the Mets, okay? A, no, no. Spend <laughs> your attention more wisely. Okay, it's, I will say this. The Mets are not mentioned in the article at all. 
But it's implied. You think think so? Yes. I think you can infer from the whole discussion. I think you have to account for... That's one of those... uh, Listen, you got to cut yourself a break. You have to account for a certain measure of human weakness. You can't be perfect in that connection. But the idea is you have to think in quite a liberal way as to where you're lapsing your attention, which brings us to two obituaries we have here. Now, these are people... You know, there are people like this, I guess. Uh, And there are good people. And you say to yourself, maybe I should be like this, but maybe they're wired differently or, or what? But I'll just uh, tell you about them. One is a fellow named George McDonald. So George McDonald um, was a guy who had a normal uh, corporate job and uh, in New York City. And uh, so he got very much upset about uh, seeing uh, homeless people around. I mean, uh, in the 80s, in particular, late 70s, early 80s, you took homeless all over the place. And that's the way it is in New York now. Uh, you know, and there are pe- people who are suffering, people who are quite poor and can't make ends meet or whatever. They're, they have, you know, no place to live, no jobs, whatever. So what does this fellow do? He quits his job in the early 1980s. Uh, he was single at that time, distant in his family. It sounds like there's a little bit of a story there, but put that aside. And he takes a vow of poverty. He moves into a single room occupancy building with space for only a chair and a single bed, shared bathroom. He takes a minimum wage job and, uh, you know, he refuses any promotion just to see if, if and how you subsist on a minimum wage job. And for two years, he volunteers every night with the Coalition for the Homeless, spending hours distributing food to homeless people around Grand Central Terminal. Uh, and he eventually emerges from, from this with the idea that... Um, what these folks need um, is a job more than anything, something in the way of a job. It's one thing to give them a sandwich, and he knows he's doing that for a couple of years. But they're the same people every day. And what they really f- find some way to get them into the mainstream of the economy so they can manage for themselves. And he starts something ultimately that becomes known as the Doe Fund. And the Doe Fund is... Uh, it's something that you see on the streets of New York. I saw when I was, you know, working. You would see them in jumpsuits. They'd be cleaning the streets or cleaning the sidewalks, uh, so that the, kind of thing. It's an organization that gives people jobs yes. to so he's do gotten, street cleaning. Right. He's gotten to do all kinds of, uh, yeah, that kind of work. They surprise them here. It's an army of garbage baggers and street sweepers in blue jumpsuits deployed to neighborhoods across Manhattan and Brooklyn. Uh, and he sort of finds government funding, or they found government funding, or the Doe Fund attracts funding. And, uh, you know, the article in his obituary talks about all the kind of issues they confronted, and a lot of the issues aren't resolved, because different people have different views about what's happening with the homeless. As a matter of fact, it comes to a point that one group is complaining that these folks aren't getting minimum wage. And, uh, you know, it's enough to derail the Doe Fund, potentially. And there are big mm-hmm. political struggles. There's even a point where uh, people are criticizing him quite a bit because he's taking a salary, ultimately, of $400,000 a year from the Doe Fund. His wife is taking a salary. His son is taking a salary. Yeah, this becomes complicated. And maybe mm-hmm. uh, some people end up viewing him differently. I don't know. But his initial instinct, you know, is kind of amazing. And he invested a great deal in it. And then people... You know, it's something he was paying attention to when he just got carried away with it. You know, some people do that. Another example is this fellow who uh, passed away, uh, whose name is uh, Frank, I'm going to get it right, Shankwitz. Shankwitz. Frank Shankwitz, 
was a state highway patrolman uh, in Arizona. And uh, he got a call at some point saying that there was a uh, young boy, happening named uh, Chris uh, Gracious. This was um, some years ago in the 80s. And um, who was terminally ill. He had leukemia. And his great wish in life was to be a highway patrolman. Could he come by? Because his favorite show was Chips. Chips, Chips, exactly. And uh, could he come by and see the boy? He'd be so excited. And uh, it's exactly what he does. He he comes down there. They uh, come up with a uh, uniform for him. uh, Matter of fact, the the child seems quite healthy the first time they see him. Uh, And they're able to give him a a sort of a driving test when you're ready to be a highway patrolman. So the seven-year-old is on his bicycle. He's doing X and Y. Yeah, it's more of a tricycle. Right, right. And uh, he's very excited. And they say he's going to come back the next day with other paraphernalia. They're getting... Stuff signed, photo signed by the guys who are the stars of the ship show and so on. And uh, comes by the next day, the kid's in a light coma. And then, uh, but he wakes up from the coma and he says, did, he, did I qualify? And he says, oh yes, you qualified. You're, There's a badge for him. Right, a badge for him. He's part shirt. of the team. Yeah. yeah, it's a very heartwarming story. And actually later that day, the kid passes away. And um, he's obviously very affected by this. And he starts, uh, long story short, uh, the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Right. On this basis, which we've all heard of the Make-A-Wish Foundation, which grants wishes uh, to terminally ill children. And it's uh, they've got the figure here somewhere, but it's over 100,000 children have been helped by this. Uh, several hundred thousand. Um, he never takes a salary from Make-A-Wish, even though he becomes the president. And then he resigns from becoming president. Because um, it's not really what he was set out to do. But um, he... Uh, he created it. I mean, it's just, uh, it's an interesting instinct to have. It's a very strong instinct. Um, and it's kind of amazing. I mean, what he says, they quote him at the end of the obituary, where he says, uh, you know, I wake up every difference with a passion to make a difference in people's lives. It was once enough for me to be a dad, a cowboy, a highway patrol officer, but my destination changed. I mean, you know, nothing you could say. I mean, I guess uh, you look at that, it's aspirational. Um, but there are stories like that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of amazing. Anyway, so the, the the last thing we have is another person who passed away was Sonny Fox. Sonny Fox was the host host of Wonderama. Wonderama uh, was a show that was in New York, and I was amazed to know that you had been familiar with it. Yes. Well, I only saw it a couple of times because uh, when we would come up to visit my grandmother, yeah, my grandparents. In New Jersey, right. and uh, we would sit in the Pine Room and watch a little TV. Yeah, and uh, Wonderama. I saw Wonderama a couple times with Sonny Fox, and I guess between the words, I don't remember the show much at all, but I definitely remember Wonderama and the guy's name, Sonny Fox. Yeah, How could Sonny. you forget that? So that's stuck with me all these years. Well, so we used to watch Sonny Fox. Um, you watch Wonder it all Ram. the time? Well, here's the deal with it. Uh, they they go on in, in this uh, old bit. The show was on for eight years with Sonny Fox, and then uh, Bob McAllister took over, if you remember that name. And um, they say it was better than the normal shows. The normal shows were wacky. It was like Soupy Sales and Sandy Becker. children's Becker. show. Uh, this was sort of it was a little gentler. It was a little more... Uh, 
uh, ambitious in terms of intellectual content. It was a more gentle. He brought wore the kids into it. A suit and a tie. Wore a suit he and was a tie. Not, he was not Mr. Green Jeans. Right. Or and Captain it, Kangaroo. And it was a diverse group of things. And even then, if you were a kid, when I was a kid, if someone would ask me to describe it, uh, you couldn't describe it because the cartoons they had weren't the greatest. They weren't the newest. <laughs> they were kind of a little goofy. And frankly, um, so it was sort of a variety show. Yes, yeah, I mean, what would show you call children. it? They they would have kids doing reports. Well, here's here's the thing that yeah, they could do reports. Look, if you would ask me just what I thought of it, I would say it's okay. It's not great. I mean, it, it wasn't fantastic. And here's the, the deal: you contrast with Soupy Sales or other shows. Those shows were on every day. Okay, mm-hmm. so they would say every day, Soupy Sales, you're on from four to five. You got to come up with something or just screw around. It was like a radio show, basically on television. Yeah. This is every Sunday for four hours. So, four hours? Yeah, they would plan it, and you can watch. No one would watch it for four hours. But it was on, uh, yeah, that's the way I remember it, for four hours. And believe me, the cartoons they were pulling out, they were like unsophisticated cartoons from the 50s. It was whatever. Um, and it was uneven. Sonny could be a little serious, and it was a little gentle. But um, what I remember uh, more than anything uh, was the theme song. And uh, it had this driving theme song. Now, I ran across something on the internet, and they talked about somebody, a fellow named David Crew who was a kid and he was on the show because they had a children's audience, they had a live audience. And uh, they had him walk up at some point and they had, uh, uh, here's the great clue. It's the, you know, I, it was in my head, burned in my head the show. I didn't know where the music came from. And they had Debbie Reynolds that, that night or that morning. Because it was done, I think it was done live. And she's out there singing this song. Which is this, and he realizes later, years later, that the um, re- the connection with Debbie Reynolds, the reason got her on, because the music from, the, from Wonderama was the music for a movie that Debbie Reynolds was in called The Unsinkable Molly Brown. And that's exactly right. Okay. So we have, and that was great. And I actually, you know, I, I learned this a few years ago myself, and I was amazed. So the Unsinkable Molly Brown is kind of interesting because, of course, it was a Broadway show before it was a movie. And first of all, you know who wrote the music for that? You'll never guess. No. Meredith Wilson. Ah. It sounds like the music name. It does sound like okay. the music Okay. It's, it's not terribly musical. It's right. okay. It's driving beat. It's syncopated. Yeah. It was whatever it is. Um, and uh, the other thing about it that I remember was the show, of course, didn't have Debbie Reynolds. She was Hollywood. The show had Tammy Grimes. And that's how Tammy Grimes became famous. Yeah. And uh, so maybe we'll play something from that. Um, and uh, for two reasons. Uh, number one is uh, Tammy Grimes. Do you know who Tammy Grimes was married to? I guess I should know this. Well... I bet not that all of us Tammies, uh, 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 you know, well, know be, everything about each well, other. He, okay. he was he was a guy who passed away this week. She was married to Christopher Plummer. Ah, really? Yeah. Amanda Plummer, the actress, is... Is, uh, is their daughter. Yeah. Ah. Uh, well, she's passed away, too. But in any event... Uh, and the second reason, of course, is because she's named Tammy. Uh, yes. So we have to play it for that reason. So in any event, Wonderama... It's a fond memory, and the music is unforgettable. And you, you heard it just a couple of times when you were visiting in Cranberry, yeah, and it stuck, stuck in your head. Yeah, it's me. a great tune by Meredith Wilson. Okay, so come on, we got to go. I'm make, going. I'm done. The, we got to make the nachos. We got to make the nachos. The, you know, well, I'm ready. All the nonsense I'm, that uh, we should be eating. Okay. And I'm ready.
All right. So until until next week, this is Dan Abuhoff. And Tamson Granger with Dan and Tamson. It's Tamson and Dan. Oh, is it? Really? It's still Tamson. I haven't been demoted. No. Tamson and Dan reading the paper. As usual, next week, see you there. I ain't down yet. You're down, Molly. Holler, Uncle. I ain't never shouting Uncle to you and nobody, because I ain't never down. Come on, Molly. You're tuckered. Why don't you quit? Sure, I'm tuckered and I might give out, but I won't give in. How can anybody say that I'm down? Look, I'm thinking. I'm thinking very hard how to break through. Maybe here, maybe there, maybe no place. But there'll come a time when nothing, nobody, wants me down like I wants me up. Up where the people are, up where the talking is, up where the joke's going on. Now look at here, I am important to me. Ain't no bottom to no pile. I mean much more to me than I mean to anybody I ever knew. Certainly more than I mean to any sidewash yazzy hampers like you guys. Go ahead, break my arm. Me say, Uncle, it doesn't make a bit of difference for you to keep saying I'm down till I say so too. You ever try stepping on a piss ant? Well, there's one now. Jumping, jumping, thinking you got him, thinking he's quit. He don't think so. There it goes. And you can be positive, sure I'm as good as any piss ant that ever lived. Oh, I hate that word down. But I love that word up, because up means hope, and that's just what I got. Hope for someplace better, someplace I don't know, cleaner, shinier. Hell, if I gotta eat catfish heads all my life, can I have them off a plate just once? And the red silk dress When there's girl enough on me to wear one And then Someday With all my might and all my mind I'm gonna learn to read and write I'm gonna see what there is to see So if you go from nowhere On the road to somewhere and you meet anyone, you'll know it's me. I'm gonna move from place to place and find a house with a golden stair. And if that house is red and has a big red.